Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, as according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lorraine. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, we like to have Bibles and have them open. We have a few on the uh, stand up front here if you don't have a Bible, uh, so that we can go through this together. We're going to unpack these verses that uh, Lorraine read just a few minutes ago, a few seconds ago. And it's going to be a very interesting passage. I got a lot of preamble to this this morning because we've been looking at a couple of important subjects so that we grasp this whole letter in its context together. And so before we dive in this morning, I'd like to pray one more time and ask uh, the Holy Spirit of God to help me uh, and help you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you and we praise you for this day. We praise you for the opportunity to come here to gather Um, to to worship you, to lift up our hands, to sing those songs that we sang earlier, declaring who you are and what you have done. Um, Father, you are so gracious to us. Your plan of salvation, your plan to rescue us, your promises to Abraham, your law, everything that you have planned out through the narrative of your scripture and brought to fruition in Christ is amazing to us. We glory in it, Father, that, that you have done this for us. And so we are so grateful. Father, I pray today as we look at these important words and and we look at uh, the subject of truth and your law, Father, I pray that our hearts would be stirred but also our minds refreshed so that we would understand who you are and what you have done. And Lord, I just pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. As most of you know, I, I'm a bit of a news junkie. I can't help it. I just, all the time, checking out what's going on in the world, in the culture. And it, it never ceases to amaze me. It's remarkable, actually. Every week, you know, just where my brain is, um, Janice sometimes wanted to have a conversation with me, and I'm going, Galatians chapter 3. Like my, my brain is always there. It's always thinking about it. It's awesome. I like that, but I can't get away from it, which is interesting. But then there's always something that happens. It seems something that happens throughout the week that really strikes my attention and, and what, what, I, what, I, what I see by that is this. Um, you know, this is a, this is a 2,000-year-old letter written by Paul to a group of churches in Galatia that he's really deeply concerned about because there's some, some false teachers coming in and, and they're perverting the gospel. They're, they're trying to suggest that you need more than Jesus for your salvation. You need Jesus plus works of the law. Not just the law, but works of the law. You need to work your way up to salvation in God and in Christ, which is not the gospel. And so Paul's trying to defend that. And yet we, we look at that, and it's so old, and we go, huh. like, what could that possibly have to do with us today? And what I see in our culture, what's going on in our world today, it's so relevant, it's almost scary, uh, what we see going on in, in the world today. Take this image, for example, that I created and put together, and it, and it came from a, a magazine article that just came out recently. Now, some of you are way too young to remember the first magazine on the left from 1966. I am too. I was barely born at that time. Actually, I was 11 years old. I know, I know, hard to believe. 1966, Time magazine printed a magazine, and on the cover of the magazine, they said, or asked the question, is God dead? Just 
recently, in 2017, they now have produced a magazine, obviously reminiscent of that, probably because their subscriptions are down, but also because of an interesting point. They produced an article asking the question, is truth dead? So 51 years ago, Time actually, with this first magazine article, had a monster hit. They had a new publisher, and one of the things that he wanted to do was because subscriptions were so-so, is he wanted to bring some life to the magazine, so he thought, you know, we're going to get a little bit more controversial, you think? (laughs) Asking the question, is God dead? Well, it became an incredibly, incredibly popular magazine, uh, and that particular issue uh, produced incredible results and buzz around the world. Now, the content of the article, if you went to the magazine and read the content of the article, uh, it referred to Fred, Frederick Nietzsche's uh, declaration from 19, pardon me, 1886 that said, God is dead, is what Frederick Nietzsche had said in 1886. And Time's article said this about Nietzsche's statement. It said this, Nietzsche's thesis was that striving, self-centered man had killed God, and that settled that. The current Death of God group, now in 1960s, there was a a group that called themselves the Jesus Seminars. They were apparently theologians of an interesting ilk, uh, believes that God is absolutely, in fact, dead, but proposes to carry on and write a theology without theos, a theology of God without God. Hmm. Interesting. In other words, without God. So, clearly... The reaction to that first magazine in 1966 was unreal. I mean, you had mostly people who were really, really upset with the magazine. Of course, the religious people, the Christians in the community were completely freaked out by it, and and people were writing, and, and they had the number one, and they've never repeated this since that time, highest amount of letters to the editor from that magazine cover, 3,500. Now, in our days of the internet today, that doesn't sound like a lot, because they probably, to Is Truth Dead, probably had, you know, 50,000 comments to the post of the newspaper, in the newspaper. But in that day, you got to remember that people had to write the letter, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and mail it. So 3,500 was unbelievable. Um, And that was pretty much, I think, what the publishers were hoping for, do you think? Because it sells advertising. You know, I mean, advertising uh, really helped in that day. So so despite the outrage, the, the cover actually gave wind to the sales to all kinds of revolutionary, revolting, uh, not revolting, that's the wrong word, uh, um, re- rebels in that day. I mean, it was the, the hippie era, right? I mean, people were like, you know, hey, man, you know, like, it was all cool. People were dropping out and tuning in, right? Tuning on and turning on. Uh, turning on, that's the words. And, and there was the women's liberation movement. You know, women were standing up and going, okay, enough of this, right? And rightly so in a lot of respects. So there was that going on. There was Vietnam coming. There, there was the Darwinian evolution. There was a lot going on at the time when this magazine cover came out. And this just gave wind to the sales of this statement and this question. Is God dead? So the current cover, Is Truth Dead?, actually, I think, should be no surprise. It should be no surprise to us. You ask the first question, and the second is just, like, come on, it's got to happen. I'm surprised it took 51 years that we get to this point today where we're asking this question. Now, the current cover and the article within actually speaks about the arrival of alternative facts, right? And you're all familiar with that. That has to do with the Trump presidency and people asking the questions like, like how, do you, how do you know what's true today? Like, you know, like this people, that people, alternate facts, facts. What's the truth? That's where we've gotten to at this point in time. So I would suggest 
that once we have, as Nietzsche said, killed God, once we've gotten to that point, we can also begin the process of basically killing truth, haven't we? It, it's not done, but we're pretty close to the point where we've killed truth, at least people's understanding of where it, what it is. And so I would say we're in very perilous days indeed. Perilous days. I mean that sincerely. So now what, what, what got us to this point, and uh, pardon me, what's that got to do with today's text? <laughs> You're gonna, probably asking. That's, that's a good question. It has to do with my little teaser last week uh, that, about the tension that we have between God's grace, his unmerited favor, his grace based on faith alone in Christ, and God's perfect law. Paul actually put it in the form of a question last week, right? In, in verse 21 where he said this, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And, and that word contrary literally means not just against, it, it means separating, pulling apart, dividing from. And so he's asking the question, is the law, you know, the Ten Commandments, the moral law in particular, Moses' top ten, right? Is that contrary to the promises of God? And then quickly he says, certainly not. Certainly not. And as I said last week, my hope is the same as the Apostle Paul's. My hope, as we see this week and next, again, shameless plug, I can't conclude it all for you today. We've got to hear the amazing conclusion in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7 next week that Paul pulls us all together. My hope is to show us how the Christian life today is to be lived in light of the law. In light of the law and the beautiful synergy that God intends between grace and law. They're not poles apart from each other. They're before the cross, at the cross, the point of salvation, and then necessary today, as I'm hoping we will see. Tim Keller, I think, puts it best, and I'm paraphrasing what he said. Uh, I always find that some other people can some, sometimes say things better than I can, and he, he said this about this point. He says, if you don't feel the force, look at this, if you don't feel the force and the tension, the deep tension that lies between grace and law, you will never experience the glorious freedom, which is the underlying theme of this letter, in Christ that Christianity can, in fact, give. So when time asked, is God dead, it was at the very moment in history where everyone was questioning, hear this, not God so much, not God so much, but God's law, God's truth and law over us and over them. Everyone was questioning authority and in every arena of life. And so let me explain. We have arrived at this precarious point in history where a magazine cover asks, is truth dead? Because we have, let's face the fact, we have relativized truth to death. We've relativized it to death. Without God's law as our highest authority, truth, right, and wrong has become fully relative. So let me give you a little illustration that might help put this together for us as we move forward about this. I, I think many of you can probably remember, you know, schoolyard days or, or playground days, you know, like you're 10, you're 11, 12 years of age, guys and gals, just guys, just gals, whatever. And, and you know, you start getting into, you know, like you start trying to show your friends how smart you are, right? And, and you've got this subject, whatever it might be. It could be any subject. And you're like, you're like really laying it on. You're, you're telling your friend that this is what it is and this is the truth about that. And, and, you know, like this is what I think. And your friend's getting a little bit, you know, like, like it feels like it's, you're getting pushy, right? You're really pushing your point of view, your opinion about a certain subject on them. And what do you think the two words are that that friend might actually say to the other person? Says 
Who? Right. I, you've been in the playground. I know you have. Uh, so I, me too, right? So you, why, but I, asked, I thought this about this this week. Why in the world would you actually ask the question, says who? At 10, 11, 12 years of age, why in the world would you automatically have this idea that you need to appeal to a higher authority? I'm not necessarily just going to take your opinion about what you think of this subject, but I'm going to ask you, says who? Well, I think we do that because it's natural. There has to be a higher authority. Now, you know what happens next in that schoolyard conversation, right? You know, when, when the one friend says, says who, then the other kid's like, my dad? <laughs> like, that, that's what I would say, because my dad was bigger and smarter than me at the time, at the time. Um, <clears throat> but then what would the friend say in response to that? My dad's smarter than your dad, right? I mean, it never ends, right? My point is, is that we, we have this necessity, and it's a good necessity, whenever we think about a point of view or a subject, to say, says who? Based on what authority are you claiming that as a truth statement? And people make truth statements all the time. So I would suggest, again, the truth is, even though we are 500 years past the birth of something called the Enlightenment, we're still just little boys and little girls in the playground arguing about says who. Why do you think that's the truth? I think this is the truth. Says who? Appealing to authority, and that's where we've got to. So the question is, how did we get here? Honestly, how did we get to this point in history? Was it because of that magazine article 51 years ago, or the most recent one? No. It started most significantly about 500 years ago. Just before the 1500s, and I'm going to do some generalization here today. I know some of you are history buffs. Some of you are much smarter than me. You're going to go, it's not quite that way. I understand. I'm simplifying, simplifying and condensing, but it's the reality, really. And the truth is, before the 1500s, everyone basically had one set of laws. Guess what they were? The Ten Commandments. Everyone in the world basically, and not that everybody kept them, clearly, obviously, right? Not that everybody appealed to them and said, yep, I'm living that perfectly. But there was generally in our world an appreciation for one set of laws that were what told us what was right and what was wrong. Murder? Wrong. You know, keeping people alive and helping people flourish as human beings? Good. And that was generally the rule up until that point in time around the 1500s. Everyone basically agreed. Then along came something that was quite tragic. It's called, really, the religious wars. Some people call them crusades and things like that, right? It's interesting. 500 years ago, you know what the two main religions were that were fighting each other? Christianity and Islam. That's kind of interesting. 500 years ago, this started, right? And, and of course, it was, not to make light of it, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. People of God, apparently, killing one another. Over what? Over what? Says who? All of a sudden, there was this debate that, that uh, you know, our God, or at least the God that we see, who Father Abraham, same Father Abraham, by the way, you know, no, but we see the law of God. We see how it's supposed to work in our world differently than you do. You see, here was the big difference. The big difference with Christianity then and today and Islam is that the Christians were supposed to know about God's grace and mercy and love and his law, or as most Muslims believe that the law and the all-wrathful God that we must appease by our works was the priority. So they had this big battle. It was horrible. And, and their fighting produced death and mayhem. 
And at that particular time, some people who considered themselves, quote, enlightened philosophers, and they were, they came along and they said, this is not good. <laughs> this is clearly not good for human flourishing for our society that people who apparently have got the truth, who apparently know God and have the law, absolute truth, are killing each other. This is not good for human flourishing. So now what they then proposed was actually intended to be a response to the carnage that was taking place. And so their heart was in the right place. They were thinking, that this has got to stop, right? Two competing religions with their two competing sets of laws, at least this is what they thought. This is not good for society. We can't have a society if people are going to keep fighting over religion, right? That's where it got to at that point in time. And so what they saw was this. They saw Christians holding their Bibles and with shields with crosses on them, running into battle saying, we've got God and his law on our side, therefore you must die. And the enemy was saying the exact same thing in reverse. It was terrible. It was wrong. So what did they include, the enlightenment uh, folks, the philosophers? Well, it was really the, the heart and of the, enli- uh, the enlightenment, which formed modernity, which then formed post-modernity. I'm not quite sure where we are today, whether we're post-post-modernity or how about this? Hashtag post-truth. Right? <laughs> like, but, but this is what informed them at that time. They concluded that the only way to stop all this, to stop people from killing each other and have people live in harmony for the sake of human flourishing, is to believe and preach, hear this, that all truth is relative. Listen, what you believe, God bless you. Believe it. Live it out in your home. You know, it's okay to think that way. And you over here, you do the same. But for goodness sakes, would you guys stop fighting and just get along? That was the initial idea. And it was a good initial idea, I think. So this new philosophy quickly became a new form of religion, which has birthed what we call today secular humanism, right? And it had its own gospel of love. It really did. The gospel of love that they had, the idea was, is that, you know, there there can't be any absolute truth. We've proved that because all it does is result in people killing each other. That's clearly not love. That's not the way for humans to flourish, And this quickly became their truth. The truth is, is that there is no truth. That we need to obliterate it so that people don't keep killing each other. That was kind of the idea. The idea that there cannot be any absolute truth. Therefore, in order for us to be a loving, compassionate, and healthy society, we'll need to decide that all truth is relative and that everyone must determine their own truth. And this is the birthplace of both relativism and inclusivism. And that's where we've gotten to today, right? In order for that to become a reality, then listen to this, everyone must be embraced. Everyone, no matter what they believe, must be embraced. You can believe in Martians, right? You can believe in whatever you want, like the spaghetti monster that, what's his name, Richard Dawkins talks about. You can believe in him too if you want. But just don't kill anybody. (laughs) And at the same time, make sure that others have the freedom to believe what they want, whatever that might be. And secondly, you need to love without judgment, So now I'm wondering, as I'm sure some of you are, uh, but also I think this is encouraging. Um, And I think both religious and secular people, as I'm reading articles, uh, are are coming to this conclusion. Is it possible that secular humanism isn't working either? Is it possible we've gotten to a point in time where we, 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 we 
realized 500 years ago that this wasn't working. We got these wars happening, people killing each other. But are we at the point now where, where, where truth is actually being killed and that's also not working in our society today? Are both God and truth dead today? Well, I think it should definitely give us pause for concern and sober second thought. After 500 years of making truth relative, we've arrived at the point that we should have seen coming, the death of truth, period. It's, it's amazing to have a conversation with anybody today and, and get to the point of having to come to truth. And it, it's like it has to stop, otherwise we're going to fight. <laughs> I don't mean physically, but there's going to be an argument that isn't going to get resolved. It's a very sad situation. So for the Christian today... What the Apostle Paul is teaching right here in Galatians 2,000 years ago is very, very relevant. God's grace and law are absolutely what we need for salvation and, hear this, for human flourishing. The question is, how do we help people who've obliterated truth see the truth again? It's called the gospel. That's what we need to get back to. So as you've seen in your notes today, if you have them with you, um, we have an outline today. Three things I want to show you from the passage. The law, our guard, guard and tutor. So we learn some more about the God. Number two, sons of God in Christ. And number three, a family oneness. So read with me again, verses 23 to 24, and we'll unpack that. Now before faith came, it says, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So in the previous text to this passage today, Paul asked the question, or he answered the question, really, why the law? Why was the law given? After God had promised Abraham, I'm going to send a seed of your offspring who will be the Savior, who will save you from the penalty of your sin and all the things. Why was the law given? Well, first... Paul told us God gave us the law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, so that we would know what sin is. It's not that people weren't sinning in the day and age. Of course, they were. But people were kind of oblivious to what it was that separated them from God, what God considered rebellion and sin, not only against him, this is important, but against each other. It was destroying human flourishing. So that was the first thing. Um, He actually said in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. And so in other words, so that we would know what sin is. So God promised Abraham and all of us that a saved savior, a substitute would come who would save us. And then he gave us the law so that A, we would know what God saw as sin. Those actions that have severed our relationship with him. And B, equally important, we would also know that we, by looking at the law, we would know within seconds, but take us longer because we're not that smart, we can't keep it. We can't keep it. People will try to keep the law, but most people within a few days of each week have broken some commandment, if not multiple commandments. So the point was to to show us that we can't keep it, therefore what? We need a Savior. We need someone to fix this problem that we have with God in our relationship with God. And as he says in verse 21, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. We would realize that our sin is a burden to us A burden we cannot bear, literally making us feel chained down in a prison cell. So Paul expands on that here, doesn't he, in verse 23. He's going on from that and he's expanding on that. He says that before faith in Jesus came, we were held captive by the law. 
imprisoned, again, I love this word, until, until is repeated many times in chapter 3. It's an important word. Until the coming of faith in Christ. So the key word here, the word captive, literally means under guard. So what we need to see is the picture of the law is keeping us in a prison cell, chained to our bed. There's gates that are closed, and there's a guard outside the gate going, you ain't getting out. <laughs> there is absolutely nothing you can do to get yourself out of this situation. That's the picture that we're supposed to see. Then look what he adds. He says that the law was like a nursery school tutor. And that's kind of a literal translation. The Greek word translated guardian is the word pedagogos, pedagog, pedagogos, which means a tutor. And, and this tutor has the sense of someone who's kind of like a disciplinarian, right? It's like, like a, a, a nanny that's mean, okay? Uh, okay. So, so the idea is, is that some translations might say schoolmaster here. That's not a good translation because it's not your teacher. It's the person who's keeping you in line for your teacher, right? So the person is going, you, you need to get up and get ready for school and get dressed and you need to eat your, and you get, got all your, all your homework done? Okay, now get, get on the bus. That's the idea here. And this is a picture of the law? <laughs> okay, that's actually what it is. Some translations I said say schoolmaster, but it's beyond that. It's someone who wants to keep you disciplined. So the question then is this, in what way is the law like a prison guard and a tutor? In what way is the law like that to us? Well, the image of the prison guard, as I said, suggests that the prison is the punishment for disobedience. The, the prison guard, the prison cell that we're in is basically this, guilty, life sentence. Under the law, guilty. There's a life sentence. That's the picture we're supposed to see. We're imprisoned by it. The second, the law being our tutor, is the constant reminder, the disciplinarian drilling into us the need to shape up and us going, I'm trying, but I can't. And not only that, you're annoying. It's, it's hard, right? It's very hard. So on this level, the law doesn't sound very, very nice, does it? It's like, God, what are you doing? Why? The promise sounds great. Why did you give us the law? Why does that have to be there? And then again, this is because God's love for us is his purpose. It's so that we will hear about the promise. Listen to this. We will hear about the promise his grace and mercy and forgiveness in Christ, and we will not only desire it, we'll be like, hallelujah. (laughs) This is really good news. That's what he's hoping we will see. Instead, unfortunately, many, when they hear the law and they're imprisoned by it, they get angry with God. They get bitter towards God. They blame him instead of ourselves. And all he's trying to do is say, look, come to me all of you who are heavy laden. It's a beautiful picture. And again, please notice these words that are repeated in here. Before faith, coming faith, justified by faith. The promise is always available. Hear this. It's always available. It's just outside the gate of that prison. It's just beyond the tutor. And it's saying, come to me. It's there. It's waiting for us. It's available to anyone who wants out of prison. Anyone who wants to be the great theme of this letter, free. Free indeed in Christ Jesus. So just believe. Trust in God's only Son and you will be free is the message of this letter. It's the message of the gospel. So point number two is sons of God in Christ. Look at verses 25 to 27. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Amen? Hallelujah? Anybody? 
Let's sing another song, okay? Like, that's pretty good right there. That's a great conclusion. For in Christ Jesus, look at this, you are all sons in, of God, pardon me, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We'll unpack that much more next week. So look at the perfect present tense Paul used here. But now... Again, whenever in Scripture we see, but God, but now, it's always about, listen, that wasn't, it didn't sound like good news, that sounded pretty brutal, sounded pretty hard, it's actually God's love for you, but now, come on, but now, it's perfect, it's present tense, it's a beautiful way of putting it. Speaking directly to Christians, by the way, he says to the brothers, to family, see the word we in there, Paul declares the freedom that we have and where it is found, the freedom that we have is in Christ, is in Christ. In Christ, we have freedom from the penalty of sin, from prison, and it's wonderful news. Now, let me highlight here today for us the word sons. You'll remember last week, uh, I did a little ditty on the word brothers, right? And, and just made, made, a, made an important point about these things. And the point of that was to say, despite the influence of our culture, and that is, it's important to use the actual words that the writers, that the Holy Spirit used. We also mentioned a, a strong movement over the, the past 30, 40 years to make the Bible more gender neutral. And we saw how the NIV used brothers and sisters instead of the ESV's brothers with a little asterisk, which down below said, or sisters. It's not a bad translation. It's good. It, it means inclusive. But the reason why it's a good translation to just say brothers and here just say sons, again, shameless plug. You've got to be here next week. Because after last week and this week, you're probably going, where is he going with this? I'm not sure I like this. It's God's word. And where Paul ends on it is beautiful. And there's reasons why the Holy Spirit uses male gender words. And if we just obliterate them and just rub them out because of our cultural sensitivities to equality and gender, et cetera, et cetera, we might miss something glorious. And that's why they're there. And I want you to see that. It's not you know, male and hierarchical and patriarchal. It's not that. It's meant to show us a picture of where this is all going in God's grand narrative in his world. So brothers, sons is actually the masculine language, as we said, but it's not just a cultural thing. It was considered inclusive in that day. Men and women, when they'd hear a a writer writing to the brothers or or calling people sons and God, Christians anyway in the church would get the the language. They'd get the family language. They would understand that. And it wasn't because of an oppressive patriarchal view. It was something else. It was inclusive. So anytime we, we sense the need to change or explain away the Word of God, let me suggest this. We need to be very careful. We need to be very careful that we aren't undermining its authority, number one, and, and secondly, that we're, we're going to maybe miss the Holy Spirit's blessing to guide us into something that we go, I didn't see that coming. That's awesome. That's good. We are brothers and sisters. We are sons and daughters in God. We understand that. But there's something else that the Holy Spirit wants to show us here. I want to give you an example of how far this can be taken, okay? You all know John 3.16. Anybody quote it for me out loud? Come on. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only who? Begotten son, right. Now, here's a translation. It might be a little surprising. Um, This is actually being used today in a number of churches in the United States and Canada. It's a translation. Um, And it's a gender-inclusive, gender-neutral 
translation. So this is John 3.16 uh, that is being used and preached from in some churches in North America today. It says this, For God so loved the world that God gave God's only child so that everyone who believes in that child may not perish but may have eternal life. And as I put down there, that's apparently John 3.16. Okay, because see, see the, the, the words that I've highlighted is interesting. The first God is that he gave. Can't see, can't use he. That's not fair. That's just wrong. You can't use he. I'm, uh, I shouldn't be sarcastic. He gave his, needed to be changed. Only what? Son. Jesus is the son of God, right? Are we okay with that? Are you okay with that? Apparently they're not. So that everyone who believes in that, in his son. So for now, for today, let me show you this. The word used here is son. Sons, masculine plural in the Greek. And it's important. And as I shamefully plugged last week, we need to see the conclusion of this next week because it speaks to not only God's grace and law and how they work together, but it also speaks to the future. And it's a beautiful, beautiful Beautiful passage. So now these three verses tell us three things. In Christ, we are no longer under a guardian, the law as our guardian. Number two, we're all, yes, men and women, sons and daughters, welcome into the family of God. And three, for as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. And the repeated use of in and into Christ, and especially the mention of baptism here, points to our adoption into the family of God. And that's the picture of baptism. It's awesome that we have several candidates in two weeks on Easter Sunday who will be giving their testimonies here on Easter Sunday, and then we will be baptizing in the afternoon. That is awesome that we get to do that. John Stott puts all this together, pulls these three verses together for us beautifully when he says this. God is no longer our judge. Amen. In Christ, who through the law has condemned and imprisoned us. God is no longer our tutor, who through the law restrains and chastises us. God is now our Father, our good, good Father, who in Christ has accepted us and forgiven us. And that's the way we sit today, accepted and approved. There's nothing that we need to do to gain that. Baptism is this visible sign of our union with Jesus Christ and also with each other. It's encouraging. It's encouraging, again, as I say, to baptize next week. So point number three today is this family oneness. And it brings us to Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. So since we've started this book, this letter, I I have to confess to you this morning, I have been anticipating with both excitement and trepidation this verse. Now, trepidation doesn't mean fear. It's trepidation because of misunderstandings and and where that can lead us in the church. Um, Let me begin with, let me begin with first what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying in the context of this letter because it's very important, and again, it's beautiful. It's awesome in its own regard. So let's look at that in the context so far that we see today, and we see truly what it is saying. So the previous verse referred to, of course, being baptized into Christ and putting on Jesus Christ. And so Paul has brought all of us to this crescendo of Christ's finished work on the cross, and he has won for us our freedom and freedom for all of us. Our faith is in his finished work alone, 
And it is what has saved us from the penalty of sin, from the imprisonment of the law and miracle of all miracles. We have been declared innocent of all charges, forgiven once for all, and all made heirs with Christ as sons of God. So we're now his children in his family with all the rights and freedoms that that entails. And here in this one verse, Paul drives home with just a single word what it all means. What it all means. What it means for every Jew and Greek, for every slave and every master, every man and every woman. We are one in Christ. That's what it means. It's incredible. So what the Enlightenment philosophers so dearly hoped for all of us is only found in the church. That's where grace and law work together. It's what the Enlightenment had hoped for. Everyone is equal before God. Human flourishing is depending on all of us being welcome into the family of God. That there is no barrier to entry based on race or rank or on gender or sex. Now, of course, the problem still exists. We need to get along. (laughs) We need to actually live out this unity and diversity, and we can only do that in Christ. Amen? And so God gave the promise, gave the law, his truth. It was hard to deal with. We tried to deal with it on our own. We couldn't until Christ. And so, again, this this is what the philosophers of the Enlightenment dearly wanted, So first we see that there's no, look at this, no distinction of race. I love this. I always talk about every nation, tongue, and tribe. The church is supposed to represent every nation, tongue, and tribe. And I love the fact that in in our church, we're getting there. (laughs) We we have people of many uh, cultural and racial backgrounds. And this is what was promised to Abraham, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Second, there is no distinction of rank, right? No matter where you're born, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're the boss or whether you're an employee, no matter your social status, uh, education, or even physical attractiveness, all are accepted into God's family. All are accepted into God's family. And finally, there's no distinction of sex. The battle of the sexes, the sexes, listen to this, didn't start in the 1960s as some people believed. I mean, I lived through the 60s, and that's what it was all about, apparently. It was called the Battle of the Sexes, and it's been going on ever since. It didn't start there. It started actually millennia ago, and it was settled, friends, at the cross of Christ. Amen? It was actually settled there. We may not see it. We might not live it out very well, but that's, in fact, where it was settled. It was the most outrageous thing that Paul could be saying. This particular verse, in that day, in that culture, this was the most outrageous and ridiculous thing he could be saying into that culture at that time. Every Jewish rabbi prayed on a regular basis. The most faithful and loyal ones, they prayed on a regular basis. Dear God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a pagan. That was the first. Second, dear Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave, but this prestigious and wonderful person that I am. And finally, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a woman. That was a prayer. The Greeks even had a similar motto that they would quote. So Paul, Paul's writing this, and he's writing into that context. And what blows me away is Paul is the guy that some people today suggest is a chauvinist, someone who doesn't like women. And the reality is, he's, he's, of course, he's preaching the Holy Spirit's words here. He's saying, no, 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 no. No, that's not the case. It's the opposite. And I love this phrase. It's level ground at the cross. It's level ground at the cross. 
You can be white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That doesn't mean you are better than an Asian person, a German person. It doesn't mean you have any access to God's love and forgiveness over someone else. You can be raised in a Christian home. It means nothing. It means nothing. So now let me quickly deal with the reason why I felt that trepidation. (laughs) I'm going to suggest to you that there is literally no verse in the New Testament that has been more violently. Now, I use that word violently because two commentators who I read about this particular subject use that word. More violently ripped out of its context to prove a point that they want to make. D.A. Carson is a theologian, pastor, seminary prof, and he, he's quoting his father. I don't know his father's name here, so I'm just going to quote D.A. But he, he has this amazing quote. It's a great pro, quote. Preachers love it because it, it, it makes a good point that I'm trying to make to you this morning. And it is this. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. <laughs> okay, you all get that, right? We can move on. Okay, let, let me explain. Uh, you know that we preach through letters of the Bible and books of the Bible at the Rock. The reason why we do that is we, we want to see the flow of the author, who is the Holy Spirit, but using you know, human instruments, men, to write these words. We want to see what it means. We want to follow it and flow through it so we see what the words mean in context. So what this statement means is that a text, like Galatians 3.28, without its context, without the rest of Galatians, specifically Galatians chapter 3, can be used as a pretext, a text that I want to use, to prove a point that I want to make from somewhere else in Scripture. That's a really unhealthy way to preach God's Word. I'm just putting that out there. And I know that for for some of us, it's like, you just called out some other preachers. You're welcome. If what I'm doing is wrong, I should be called out. We should be. We need to be held accountable. Actually, the Scripture says that I will be held more accountable than you for what I do. So I take it pretty seriously, and I want you to as well, but I also just want you to know the truth of God's Word so that we can actually live it out. And so here's what some people would say about this text. They skip right over the the Jew and Greek bit. They skip right over the slave and the master bit, and they focus on the male and female. And of course, our culture today kind of demands that, doesn't it? Got to demand that we do that. And and it's here that they will assert that the Apostle Paul has provided the biblical lens, the filter that we should use, that supersedes all of his rather unfortunate and disturbing teachings about the roles of men and women in the home and in the church. This verse is used to make that point. They would say that Paul's words here make it clear that in Christ, in the home and the church, men and women are fully equal in value, worth, and roles. Fully equal. Paul has turned everything else upside down. Now, one of the problems with that is this, besides the fact that it's not the context of this verse, is that Paul's other writings about roles in the home and roles in the church come like 10 to 15 years later in other books of the Bible. So it's like 10 or 15 years later, Paul must have forgotten what he wrote here. It's not what's happening. Therefore, passages that teach that men are to be the spiritual head, spiritual head of the home are now overruled, and the home must therefore be a partnership with two equals who co-lead in the home. That's what people would say. Secondly, they would say that this also overrides Paul's teachings on the roles of pastor, elder, preacher in the local church. The truth is, and and I've I've actually asked people on a regular basis, because trust me, I want to be right. I want to be right for us and for, so that I'm standing up here and declaring it. Please show me any evidence in the New Testament scripture where a woman is a elder, pastor in the local church, or a preacher. Because it would be a game changer for me, okay? And I mean that sincerely. If there is a woman who is in that role, 
And, and, but they would say this overrides that, that, that both men and women... So the question is this, for you and I here today, who's right on this? Some would say that as a preacher, Glenn, what you should do is you should get up and say, some people believe this, right? And some people believe that. And on issues like this, you know, like we don't want to... That's kind of like saying truth is relative, isn't it? Isn't it? I think it is. And the answer that I often give to people is, guys, we both can't be right here. Now, is it, a, is it an issue to divide over and fight over? I don't think so. I mean that. And in fact, I'm sure it isn't. But the reality is, is that we need to respect the positions that people take who don't think this verse has anything to do with that. And that's what I'm trying to show you here this morning. The truth is not relative. Also, may I suggest that you ask yourself this. Can you remember at any point in this letter so far, and those of you who have been with us listening to the podcast, can you remember at any point in this letter so far where Paul has been talking about the church, the governance of the church, about pastors, elders, teachers, roles? The answer is nowhere. The subject of the letter is not about that. And so context is important. It's really important to this. It's not what it speaks to. So finally... I think this whole thing and this whole line of thinking seems to miss the real point of the beauty of this verse. And that's what, just, that's what upsets me personally, is that we, we get sidetracked into these side issues when Paul has a point here that's so beautiful about what this verse is actually saying. I would like to suggest to you that the point of this verse is about oneness, not about sameness. It's about oneness in Christ in the church and the family, not about same. I Listen, I don't want my wife to be exactly like me. I wouldn't marry me, okay? I don't want that. I want my wife to be woman, 100%, not 50%, 50% makes a whole... No, I want her to be 100% woman, and I'm hoping, I'm thinking, she wants me to be 100% guy, man. It, it, it does not say that there is no longer Korean or no longer Malaysian or no longer African or no longer German or no longer Jewish and Gentile. It doesn't say that. It, actually, we're supposed to celebrate our diversity in unity. I mean, can you imagine saying to your Asian friends, stop being Asian now. You know, stop doing that. Stop cooking that Asian food. You know, we should all be eating meat and potatoes, you know, lots of gravy, veggies on the side. Can you imagine a life without sushi? But it would be, we, we, we don't homogenize those differences, do we? We celebrate them. I mean, can you imagine going to work tomorrow and because you have a Christian boss saying to your Christian boss, okay, look, roles have been obliterated. We don't want to, like Paul said, there's no longer for slave or master. So I'll tell you what, for this week, you, you do the work. I'll stand around and supervise. Like, <clears throat> it's kind of a crazy analogy and picture I understand, but think about it. We don't suggest those kind of things in that area. And so why would we do that on the personal and the male and female level? So I'm going to leave it at that, and we'll put some questions into your uh, small group discussions this week. Wayne and Heather, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, it'll be awesome. And, and here's the deal. This is where we should discuss this. The reason for it is not to argue. It's not to say who says. Actually, maybe it is. It's to say, what does God's word say and why? If God's word says that men should do this and women should do this, but that we're one in Christ, how do we make that work how do we live it out in love? How do we do that? That's the objective. Paul finishes in verse 29 with this. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul concludes the first half of this letter perfectly. It's beautiful. 
The promise that God gave to Abraham was Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are Abraham's offspring as well. And on that basis, we are heirs. I don't know how many of you are looking forward to an inheritance one day on this earth. Forget it. The one that is waiting for you as an heir of the Son of God is outstanding and beautiful. And it's according to the promise, not works of the law. So listen, what we've seen throughout the chapter 3 is this. In one chapter, Paul has, has shown us this wonderful narrative, this great expanse of God's plan. It's gone from the promise to Abraham, right? This incredible promise that I will rescue you, I will save you, just based on you trusting me and having faith in me. And then 430 years later, he gives this law, this, this great story of this thing that we need, and, and, and apparently we needed it before the cross, at the cross, and somehow in our world today, in our lives today, we need the law to be part of our lives, and then it's all until Christ, at the cross, and also the point where you and I confess our sins, repent, and turn to him, and it's until him. And it's just an incredibly beautiful picture. We are freed from the prison. We're freed from the tutor. We're now one family of God. So the question now is, how then shall we live? This week, how then shall you live? How are you going to live? Next week, some of the applications I can give you because of the conclusion, I think will be really encouraging. I really do. But let me leave you with one today, and I'm going to ask you to meditate on these words this week. These are the words of a man who had already been found righteous, like Abraham, a man who was a sinner and did all kinds of things even after he was found righteous by God. And this is what he had to say about the law. His name is King David, and in Psalm 119, verses 97 and 98, he says this, Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your law. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. It is my meditation all the day, he says. May I encourage you this week? Go to Exodus 20. Read the top 10. Read the top 10. Don't avoid it. Read it. And ask the Lord, as we'll see next week, how has the Holy Spirit, how is the Holy Spirit changing your heart towards God's promise, His grace, and His law? Let's pray together.